the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into hour two, uh, going into the, uh, but partially already in the holiday season and going into Christmas and New Year's. We try every year to uh, visit in studio with uh, really someone I just, I, I've really has been a tremendous value to my life and one of the greatest people I've gotten to know since I moved back to the Valley about, what is it now, 10 years and um, he is Steve Moak Jr., M-O-A-K is how he spells his last name. And we try and do this time of year, we kind of try and do a message uh, for some of the unspoken about challenges that people, families uh, go through, particularly those struggling with addiction, um, particularly those um, who um, are maintaining or clinging on to their sobriety and have challenges to it. One might even say sometimes threats to it or have family members or friends that might be going through it. Steve Moak Jr. offers up uh, his own story and his own advice on how to help uh, get through these particularly trying and potentially risky times for people who find themselves in those situations. And we give out the phone number because Steve loves to talk and uh, take calls as well. So if you have a question for Steve, 602-508-0960. But really one of my favorite people in Phoenix, Steve Moak Jr., thanks for being with us. Seth, this is honestly one of my favorite days of the year when I get to sit in here and talk to you on air. I love it when we meet for breakfast and chat, but on air is is really special. Thank you for having me. Well, it's important stuff that you talk about. And... um, I guess we should start with the bona fides. Tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to be where you are. I can tell you this. It, it wasn't supposed to be this way. Like, it, it just wasn't. Um, you know, I'm a person in long-term recovery from substance use disorder. That's a fancy way of saying I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. Um, September 11, 2014 is the last day that I took a drink or drug, and uh, it's been an interesting journey since then. But my journey started... Well before then, you know, I've lived in the Valley 30-plus years with my parents now, went to Sequoia, went to Kokopa, and then went on to Chaparral, and eventually graduated from Arizona State University. But my real story started in Kokopa in middle school, right? Um, right in that 7th, 8th grade period, uh, I had some friends who were experimenting with drinking, and it was really who I started to hang around with. I was a athlete. I was the basketball player, the track guy. I mean, I was just your typical, you know, kind of jock, really, is what I was. But I I developed a peer group that had some older brothers that kind of exposed me to some drinking. And it was nothing serious at the time, but I remember very distinctly being at, like, a pool party and and having, like, a beer or two with them and, and just thinking, wow, this is pretty cool. Nothing happened right at that exact instance, but then I rolled into into high school at Chaparral High School. Um, you know, back this was 1994. I'm dating myself a little bit there, and I was vice president of my class in student government, and genuinely, I think, pretty well liked or popular, whatever you want to call it. And I remember the the one thing that year that really kind of changed my life um, was going on a student government retreat. 
Uh, it was the end of the year retreat. We went to Coronado Island. We were staying at the Dell. It was kind of our little bonding thing. And I remember being with these the cheerleaders, the upperclassmen. And when you're a 16, 15, 16-year-old kid, right, I mean, these were— 17-year-olds pay attention to you. It's a big deal. I, these were beautiful girls and the upperclassmen, you know, seniors of the basketball. I mean, these were like people that you, you really looked up to at the time, right? It may seem silly to think about it now. No, but, but all you wanted deal. to be was them. That's yeah, correct. Yeah, right? Yeah. And so we're sitting in this hotel room, and I remember schnapps was getting passed around in these little bottles. I don't know if I've had a, a sip of schnapps since, but I remember it was like a root beer schnapps getting passed around. And then I remember what I thought was a cigarette kind of going around. I had not been exposed to marijuana at that time. And uh, and when it came my turn, you know, the girls were there. It was just like it was I, – I didn't have a choice the way I viewed it. And I, I took a hit of that – what was a joint – and I immediately felt my lungs explode and started coughing, not only from the feeling of the actual drug taking its effect on me, but what I remember as clearly was the feeling of kind of the acceptance from the other people in the room and kind of how that washed over me. And I remember when what got you in the club. That, right. Mm-hmm. And I remember Price when I got that. home immediately trying to seek out drugs and alcohol so that I could kind of keep that group of friends and circle and try and get that feeling again so it started seventh eighth grade and really kicked into high gear and at the end of my freshman year and then really took its toll over the course of of my high school career and i'm happy to share more but i just just, i remember these little things in life that that said that completely changed the trajectory of my life sitting in that hotel room with these people drinking schnapps and hitting that joint so at one point during this hour of conversation, we should probably talk about, unless you want to do it here, I want to come back to your story. So either way, tell more of your story or take a moment here to think about with the audience, you know, what parents might tell their kids who might find themselves in those similar types of situations. You don't plan on it. Right. You don't expect to be in that situation. Your guard is down and you're caught in it. Of course, we should probably say not everyone who does try it is going to uh, have an experience of years, decades, or even a lifetime of addiction. But you're playing Russian roulette. You don't know what bullet is in what chamber with what human being because we don't test eight and nine and ten year olds as to proclivities of whether they have the possibility of an addiction you hit the nail on the head um i heard it once described and i think i've said this maybe even on your show in the past years of, of flipping that light switch yeah. and for me yeah, once once that light switch was flipped like i was go mm-hmm. right i was go for some people they can turn that switch right. back off right it, it, I was predisposed to it. You know, my family had never really talked about the family history of drug and alcohol addiction and what that could look like. When we took a step back years later, as it kind of reared its very ugly head, we did see within our family tree where it, it was. And maybe if we would have had discussions around that, that we could have had, I could have had some thought before picking up this. I'm also a fan of built-in excuses if you can give your kids those things. Yeah. My parents drug test me. Uh, I got a curfew. I got to get home. I've got a big game tomorrow. You know, give them, arm them with an out so that they can kind of, you know, nicely bow out of those situations that are high pressure. I'm a huge fan of the idea of drug testing and having drug testing kits either at home or at schools. And, you know, whether it's after school programs or athletics, doing it on a routine and regular basis, um, because that is a great thing for a child to be able to say a teen an adolescent to be able to say no to. It's hard to say no when you're looking at your quote unquote heroes. But if you say 
I'll get kicked off the team or I'll get kicked out of the club. Boy, most people respect that. It, it gives the kid an out. I mean, I'm not going to say even if you just buy the box and right. set it down there, but it legitimately does where they can now bow out and save face. Right. In a high pressure, you know, and I think it's even worse when I was in high school in the late 90s versus 2022, 23 with social media. I mean, now if we can give them an easy way to kind of bow out, I think having a box like a drug and alcohol test in your home would would really help be a deterrent. The challenges are so great. Uh, They're even greater now because not only is the menu bigger, has the menu expanded, but people don't even know what they're getting. I mean, you at least knew kind of at that moment or at least within 30 seconds of it coming into the palm of your hands, you knew what you were about to embark on. Boy, I'll tell you, a lot of people don't anymore at these parties for 8, 9, and 10, 10th graders. They don't know what's 11th graders, 12th graders, college students. They don't know what's what what's in what they're I, taking. I listened to your guest yesterday no talking about right. fentanyl no. No. And, and just how prevalent that is and, and how it's cut into everything. Uh, marijuana is not the same marijuana and it is being vaped. It is. I don't even think it's the preferred method of just, you know, the old leaves into a pipe anymore. It's not. These are all oils. These are all high high potent, very potent substances that can easily be hidden now as well. You can sneak to a bathroom and discreetly get away with some of this stuff. So how are parents supposed to know? I mean, my parents found, you know, a bag of pot and a bong in the back of my Ford Explorer because it stunk, right? That's not necessarily the case. So, you know, the the, the vigilance that it takes as a parent, and I am now a parent, by the way. Granted, she's three years old, but and I'm not saying I'm worried about it at this moment, but I'm just going, oh, my goodness, like – what is it going to look like by the time she gets to middle school and high school? I think these conversations are important for all the work I have done and all the people I have known in uh, addiction and recovery, Steve. Uh, it's interesting. They do find that family journey or that family genealogy or that family background where they see the warning signs, but they never they never look for it and they never study it and they never – they never find out about it until after they're already it's it's what people do once they're in the grips or once they're in recovery they say oh yeah i could see how this would have happened probably something we should all look at before it happens i want to talk about a lot when we come back from the commercial uh, break steve uh i want to talk a little bit more about uh, the rest of your journey from uh, from high school onward and i want to make a very important point about talking to someone like you um, talking to someone like you is like talking to a miracle. And the reason I say that is um, we, we, we in, the prevention, um, in the prevention business or in the prevention community understand that you're very rare. For someone to go down the road of addiction and come out of it, that's as big a crapshoot as anything. There aren't a lot of people that have long-term sobriety after it. So let me hold you on that and we go into the break. Put out the phone number again, 602-508-0960, and we'll hear more from Steve Moak when we come back. Steve Moak Jr. is our guest. Uh, you can follow him and reach out to him, uh, of course, here on the show if you want to call 602-5080-960. But uh, even afterwards, or even if more anonymously uh, through Instagram, he is at Mr. Moak, M-R-M-O-A-K. M-R for Mr. Moak for M-O-A-K. Uh, Steve, uh, you told us about your journey and how the flip was, the light flip, the light switch was flipped. 
uh, with that uh, with that first joint uh, with alcohol you took. Uh, tell us about you know the ups and downs that got you finally into long term. So that was the start yeah. of a long journey, and not just for me, for my family. Mm. By the way, too, I, I often think that they kind of get left out, and I think mm. that happens with a lot of drug addicts and alcoholics is that we we fail to kind of talk about the impact of the family but we can talk about that a little bit later i mean from that point of my freshman year on i my grades immediately started to decline my peer group changed so if you as a parent are looking for red flags my sleep patterns were different new Who friends I, different friends new friends, friends. child doesn't maybe want to introduce you to right uh-huh. little money was missing from mom and dad's wallet from time to time uh, sleeping, eating patterns were different. You know, what used to be a jock was a little more lethargic and things like that. Uh, all things started to change. I started to get in a little more trouble at school. Sports became a little less important to me. And again, as a jock, and I'll just call it what I was, a hardcore jock, you know, sports weren't the priority for me, and I was seeking out other things. So immediately from that point on, you know, m- things started to change in my life. And what's interesting and what I found out after the fact is that parents typically find out at least 12 to 18 months after the, their, their kid starts to use. They're about a so, year behind. Exactly. So I had a full and, – and let me tell you, you can become an addict in much less than a year. And don't kid yourself. I was 15, 60 year old, 16 years old, and I was addicted to marijuana and alcohol. I also started taking other drugs as well, too. Anything that my peer group would find for me, I was open to, which also led me to extremely sketchy parts of town that this kid from Scottsdale Paradise Valley was showing up in an explorer buying drugs from places where they are cooking. I don't know if you know how to cook crack, but they have it baking soda over a stove. Over a stove. I'm in these environments, Seth. This was insanity that I even made it out of here alive. But fast forward through my parents finding out, my cars getting taken away, my car, not cars, my car getting taken away, and just a constant battle on the home front. I always got along with my parents. They're nice people. The The hell that I made our life, which would, would, should have been a very comfortable life and enjoyed, I didn't know what I was doing, but I made it extremely difficult. And all the way through graduation, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was captain of the track team, quit. Uh, I quit my senior year of playing basketball, and I was a very good basketball player, and I love it. I play again now, and I look back and go, my gosh, how did I let that opportunity slip by me? But I was so clouded with drug and alcohol use and kind of wanting that to be who I was, and I'd wrap my identity around it as well, too. I skated by just enough to get into college where any good pot-smoking drunk would go, and I got into the University of Colorado at Boulder. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that is the story of the addict's life, though, isn't it? Slowly and then quickly surrendering thing, good thing after good thing after good thing. You know, not just family, but talents and natural talents. You're a very naturally talented person since recovery. You can now outrun me. We've learned this a I'm couple just times. waiting for you to sign up for the race. Join the rock and roll half marathon. How did you finally get into serious recovery? So, or recovery that worked? Sure. I, I've had two... You know, two attempts at recovery. So when I went away to school at Boulder, Colorado, it was it was kind of a blackout for about, for about a year. That involved theft from my family, basically flunking out of college there before getting yanked out and placed into a treatment center before I was even 21 years old. So before I was even legally allowed to have a drink, I was so far gone that my parents forced me into a treatment center at a place called Chandler Valley Hope, now called Valley Hope in the airport. I literally got on a plane 
got off the plane. They drove me straight straight to the treatment center where it was my first introduction into recovery. I had never heard about it. I didn't know anything about AA or 12 Steps or recovery or any of that, and it changed my whole life. And from that point on, uh, I I put together about three and a half years of recovery where I completely changed my life, and it was beautiful. And part of my journey was was a relapse. And I know that's an overused phrase from some time, but I tell people recovery is not a straight line up into this positive, happy world. It is up, down, backwards, sideways, way backwards, pain, emotional, highs, lows. It is tough. the elevator in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That's a great way of putting it. And I hit every stop along the way there. And I was out on a date with a girl. We were at a party. I had no intention of drinking whatsoever. Three years clean at this point. Three and a half years yeah. clean at this point. I was, you know, a youth leader. I was involved in, you know, church groups, and I mean, I was doing all of the right things. And I ordered a Red Bull, which I would do. They handed it to me in a glass. I didn't think twice about it. I took a sip, and it was Red Bull vodka. Ah. No alarms went off. No red sirens started buzzing. It. Not, I was of legal age to to have a cocktail. Seth, that that night, immediately, I probably had eight more of those drinks right there. I mean, it is as if a day had not passed since my last drink, yeah. right? Yeah. And and I look back, again, another one of those instances, it's like, if it could have just used that as a slip and, and just could have you know, stopped mm-hmm. the trajectory in my life and how it would look very different. But instead, I used that as an opportunity to then slowly work my way back into drinking. I kept telling myself I had a problem with drugs. Mm-hmm. And alcohol wasn't really the problem. So I gave myself permission through this kind of justification that allowed me to slowly start drinking again. And that was the story I would tell the other people in my life. Of, hey, 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 I, I had a problem with cocaine, you know, up in college, like not not alcohol. Right. And people people like people wanted to believe me. Of course. Right. Sure. So they kind of went along with that. Yet this thing that had just kind of been laying dormant was slowly starting to get in, awakened again. How many years then? Till you got took out a decade shot. of my life, a decade, a of decade, your life. a marriage. It took out a relationship with my parents. It took out jobs, you know, financial opportunities. I mean, it took out a lot. Did this all happen clearly in one minute? No, but so I, roll. I kept just going, and people could kind of see that Steve's drinking wasn't really normal. Mm-hmm. And then marijuana started to become more and more regular. I wasn't doing a bunch of cocaine at that time, but eh, maybe somebody would come into town or a special occasion or the golf tournament or whatever it was, and it slowly built upon itself before I found myself alone, broken again, and I I, I just knew what I needed to do. Everybody had left. Uh, I was just by myself and hanging out with people that I had no business hanging out with, and I just looked around and went, this is, this is not who I am. It's not who I want to be. This is not what I want. I made a phone call to my parents. I was picked up that day and taken to a detox here uh, just down the street from here, actually, where I spent five days basically in a psych ward locked up detoxing because I was doing a lot of drugs and alcohol. Everybody had left in my life by then, so I was kind of left to my own devices, and it, it was really ugly. Some of this stuff you can't do alone or without some kind of medical supervision or intervention, right? Because the withdrawal and all that can be. The only thing my parents said, if you want to talk to us, we'll help you. But other than that, they didn't. Anyone hear from me? I get it. I get it. Um, and now this is uh, this was your last use. Yep. Was that story? September 11, two thousand fourteen? No connection to that. Just just happened to be. The I, day. Yeah, I've heard that relapses 
too many people's story, but it doesn't have to be their right. story. Maybe when we come back from the break, this is being such a pregnant time of year where emotions are running wild, tensions are running wild, stress is running wild. For those that are clinging on, maybe we can talk about some strategies sure. when we come back. Steve Moak Jr. is our guest at Mr. Moak, M-O-A-K, on Instagram. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Steve Moak Jr. is our guest. You can follow him on Instagram. Reach out to him at Mr. Moak, M-O-A-K. Uh, tough time of year for a lot of families. If they themselves aren't uh, in sobriety or even struggling, they may know someone, a family member or a friend. Uh, this is when it kind of gets you. I've heard addicts in recovery say things like, I'm okay right now in this room with y'all, but outside the addiction is doing push-ups ready to strike at any moment. What do you tell people? You know, the there's a the word fine you get a lot when you ask people, and there's a F word, you know, that kind of starts for an acronym there, um, and that kind of talks about insecure, neurotic. You know, I mean, it's... Yeah. I, I worry about people not just in recovery. I mean, the holidays are a tough time for all emotions, yeah. right? And, I, and honestly, 2022 has been probably the hardest year for me on that. So as a person in long-term recovery, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't have it. I'm doing air quotes over here. It's been really challenging in my personal life. Um, and, and so what do you do, right? And what do you do rolling into the holidays when it kind of feels like there's that much more weight on your shoulders? For me, you know, my first thing is let's try and take some of the pressure off of the situation. You don't have to attend every single party that you're invited to. You don't have to show up at every single event. For me, exercise is a massive, massive part of my life, and it really, from a physical standpoint, from an anxiety standpoint, self-esteem, all of it. Yeah, like I can't stress enough. You know, finding a gym, some type of exercise, and it's not just just the, the benefits of exercise, but just taking your mind off of whatever it is that's kind of weighing on you at that time for the hour that you're running, boxing, swimming, kicking, biking, you name it. I just, I, it's so important for so many reasons. And I really encourage people to, to get out, move around a little bit. And I think it's going to change physically, chemically, emotionally, how a lot of those stressors weigh on you, especially during this time of the year. Even some of those positive messages, I don't know what if they're endorphins or whatever they are that go up to the brain that sometimes people use drugs to replace them with. You get it from you can get it from exercise. And if you can't afford a gym, it doesn't cost you anything to walk and run. Just a walk and some classical music or, or whatever it is to kind of take your mind off it. But but back to your original question, again, you don't have to attend every party. It's okay to say no. Right? Even visiting family that you don't want to. I once heard someone say, I don't know why people leave those they love to go be with family. <laughs> now, I mean, we are a family pro, pro family show, but sometimes, sometimes, maybe it's not the right time of year. There's a, a lot of us in recovery and a lot beyond recovery that are people pleasers, right? And, you know, we want to say yes. And, and one of the things that I learned early on is it's okay to say no, right? If it's placing too much stress, anxiety, or if you just don't want to do it, it it's okay. 
Like, it's okay to bow out and sit one out every once in a while and take some time to be with yourself. Now, if you're saying no and you're holed up and you're Isolating, just... Isolating, yeah. Right. Now we're kind of moving too far to the other side into that isolation, which then would make me nervous as well. So there's a fine line, you know, in kind of balancing these things out. And there are a ton of 12-step meetings, too. I mean, some people don't uh, d- don't get everything they want from them and some people don't like them, but that's the cheapest thing you're going to find for an hour. Look, I'm talking about connection. That's yeah. what I like to see people, right. you know, the 12 12-step rooms offer connection. They offer people at different stages of their journey, you know, some Going still. through the same struggle. Right. Yeah. But I, 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 what I'm a big believer in now as I've kind of continued to grow is I like checking in on people. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously we've seen, you know, high-profile suicides yep. and things like that from people that you think are quote-unquote strong. Right. Fine. Have everything in the world. Right. Most popular person. It they takes are no, dying inside. No effort to send a text. Oh. And, how you doing? Like, hey, you know, love to get together for a coffee or just wanted to say hi or I was thinking about you. I mean, trust your gut when it comes to these things. It takes – I mean, we can text anybody in a second. Send an emoji. I don't care. You know, reaching out to those that you think may be struggling, again, in and out of recovery, Seth, I I think that is a really important thing and something that I'm trying to do in my own personal life because there's a lot of us that will, exterior, I'm smiles and happy and high five, but man, you know, behind the scenes, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Let me take, this was a short segment, we'll have a longer one coming up, let me take the opportunity in the next segment just to talk about a more global view of this. I can't not do the policy part of it because we are in a crisis right now that I think we aren't even at the light of the end of the tunnel part two yet. Um, we just, we were watching something on the news during the break, 108,000 deaths due to drug overdose each one of those is preventable each and every one of those it's a lot of people three to hundred three hundred to four hundred people a day Um, and now the greatest life threat to young adults it's not covid it's drugs let's talk about all of that when we come right back steve moke jr is our guest we'll be right back Steve Moke Jr. is our guest. You can follow him on Instagram at Mr. Moke, M-O-A-K. Anyone who's been to Washington, D.C. and seen the Vietnam uh, Memorial, that long, dark scar of a wall, has about uh, 56,000 names on it. took about 16 years of uh, tragedy to get those 56,000 names on that wall. Uh, With the drug poisoning deaths we are committing ourselves to every year in this country, you would need to build two walls. You would need to build two of those walls a year to match that one wall that took 16 years to amass. Steve uh, Steve Moak Jr., you and I were talking on the break, uh, this overdose crisis. I, I just call it poisoning because it's not an overdose. It's a dose. Um, this drug poisoning crisis that we're facing here, Steve, um, you were, you and I were kind of talking about you always think it's going to happen to someone you don't know. Right. These, these statistics are statistics, um, but increasingly we find people we do know. Um, we have some big, problem, big public policy problems in this country and a lot more challenges. I was talking about the expanded menu. It ain't just pot anymore. It ain't just cocaine anymore. It ain't just crack anymore. Go ahead, sir. These are young deaths, too, right? These are, you know, one-time use deaths, right? I mean, that is what we're talking about. You know, that 107,000 people that – 
how that number is thrown out a lot, why it doesn't stop people in their tracks and go, oh, my gosh, what do we got to do? We have to address that immediately, yet it just rolls off our shoulder as if it's like, okay, I don't know how you can get that number to become personal, that it's your son, daughter, husband, wife, neighbor, and internalize that a little bit more, and then maybe, maybe we'll have some more action to do this. These are preventable deaths. And, and why we just accept that as a cost of doing business in this country is beyond me. You uh, were mentioning uh, listening to my uh, interview with David Murray yesterday, formerly of ONDCP, now with the Hudson Institute. We were talking a lot about fentanyl, and as bad as fentanyl is, he was now talking about a new thing that's appearing in the streets of Philadelphia and the streets of Rhode Island. And um, it, it it's, it's probably a, a generalized mistake to talk about these drugs as isolated drugs. I, I think it's all all illegal drug use is a problem. I have to tell you, um, I think this country in too many places is sending the wrong message on it, if it's sending a message at all. Uh, half the problem is that there is no prevention messaging. The other half is where you do see some messaging in some of these ravaged cities like D.C., New York, and San Francisco. It's all the wrong messaging. I can't tell you how infuriated I am when I see Departments of Public Health paste their names on posters talking about safe use, safe use of opioids, safe use of opiates. In San Francisco, they have billboards that say, start slow, use with a friend. This is the wrong message. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. It's a surrender. And people make fun of just say no, by the way, too, (laughs) simultaneously, right? Like it's it's the butt of jokes is just say no. But now we're saying just say yes, but eh, just a little bit. I I don't know. It's extremely frustrating to kind of hear that messaging coming out. Um, I do think that, you know, so I've been in the behavioral health world working and own a business and in long-term recovery. I've since kind of stepped away, so I'm outside of it. I kind of had to play a little bit nicer, Seth, because I was working with treatment centers and outpatient programs. And now coming on the other side of this, we got to hold some of these providers accountable, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, we're spending tens, twenties, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars in sending people to treatment. We don't have visibility into outcomes. The sugar coating of the language they're more worried about than the the son or daughter getting better while we're there, not calling them a drug addict, but an opioid use disorder. I mean, and I'm guilty of it too. I started out the show saying that, but that was kind of my old me, kind of going on autopilot saying that we've got to start holding some of these treatment providers accountable. I think we spoke last time. The state of Arizona spent almost a billion dollars in treatment. Tell, tell me the outcome for that spend, right? Just fiscally, how, how was that? Let alone the impact on the lives across this state and, and then times that across the country, and it's astronomical. It starts with the parents, uh, and it has to it has to happen in the schools, and I think it has to happen in social media as well. The messaging has to take place where the kids are looking, where the kids are learning, and if it's not a parent, it's a school. If it's not the school, it's the social media. So it's got to be the responsible of a more responsible government other than to say – use safely and use with friends. Uh, We don't say that about nicotine and cigarettes. We don't say that about anything else. Somehow with the worst of it, we are now saying, well, okay, we can't do anything about it. There are states that have it worse than us. In California, uh, some of these mandated programs don't require sobriety of you to be in them. This is insanity as well. California has coined a term California sober. Right. Which is not sober, not sober. Right. And I feel like I'm taking crazy pills over here when people are like, you know, I'm sober. You know, I just smoke weed or just take pills. And I'm like, look, if that's the way you want to live your life, like no judgment here on that. It's not for me. 
but please don't use the word sober attached to that. Right. And now you're just going to confuse all these people on Instagram and TikTok who think, well, I'm sober. I'm just smoking weed. Right. I mean, weed does have impacts. I worked in a treatment center. People were addicted to weed in the treatment center of all ages, just weed. It wasn't other stuff. So please don't kid yourself that you can't be addicted to marijuana. It's just it's very frustrating. Sorry, I get but, fired well, but up But the here. other interesting thing about it is, is you know, I, I, I never really make what some people think is the gateway argument. I never really make the gateway argument because of that uh, uh, because of that Russian roulette will. But what I do say is if you want to graduate to fentanyl, that's where you start. I have not talked to an ME or a county or district attorney who has looked at a fentanyl death that didn't start with marijuana. Mm. I'm not saying marijuana gets you to fentanyl, but I'm saying if you're graduated at fentanyl, you probably started there. You start priming the brain at the young age. Our effort, we've talked about this, uh, other people have talked about this, our effort is don't start. Just simply don't start. And if you can get a kid to 21 without using or initiating, you've probably won the ball game. So, so obviously, you know, Debbie, my mom, um, and not my kid and the work that they've done, right? And they, they had a great campaign. It was kind of win this year, right? And it started in kind of seventh grade because that's where we see often that age of first use, typically alcohol or nicotine. Now it's really vaping. I don't even think cigarettes are really right. a thing now. Now it's just vaping nicotine. And then win this year, and every year you can put that off. I think that you've made a significant impact in your son or daughter's life by just kicking the can down the road. Yeah, that's right. And one of the things that maybe we have a closing comment from you in the uh, in the next segment as we as we wind this one down. One of the many things that uh, has been a frustration when I talk to adults, not uh, not youth, but adults, parents is this notion it's it's kind of it's kind of an analog to what they're doing in San Francisco at DC and New York this analog of parents saying well I know my kids gonna so I'd rather they do it at home and with me maybe you could say something about that when we come back too absolutely let me put in a word for one of our great sponsors why refi if you are looking to make an investment but are worried about stock market volatility why refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market it's an investment where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose. No loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. To secure collateralized portfolio, Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm. And you can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y dot com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34, up to 10.25% rate of return, 10.25%. Great guys. Another great guy. Steve Moak Jr. come back with some concluding thoughts. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Steve Moak Jr. has been our guest for this hour. If you missed any part of it, you can always go to our website, 960thepatriot.com, and get the whole thing for free, gratis. Uh, you can follow him and uh, interact with him on Instagram at Mr. Moak, M-R for Mr. and Moak, M-O-A-K. Last couple minutes with you, uh, Steve. Uh, message the community. You know, thanks again for having me, Seth. I really appreciate it. The work that you do here is, is very important. You know, I'd like to end on maybe a little bit lighter note. I got a little fired up on that last segment. Um, you know, this is a challenging time of year. Uh, it's great to be around your family. I enjoy being around my family. They're incredible people, but it can be a little bit stressful. 
if there's ways to, again, take a little bit of that stress off from any situation that you can be in, give yourself a little bit of a break, go easier on yourself during this time of year, take an extra couple minutes if you need it, take that little breath if you need it, step away, like really try and not just pressure, pressure, pressure. Like I, I can't stress that enough. The other thing, and again, this is something I'm doing in my own personal life, is just reach out to some people. Right. You know, that everybody's probably got somebody right now, as I say, send somebody a text. Just tell them that you're thinking about them. Uh, love to catch up with you. Do it. I mean, just don't think about it. Just just do it. You know, these are tough times of years. There's divorces. There's finances. There's stress. There's kids. There's pressures trips. to be happy, pressures to be joyful. It, you might not be in that space. No, yeah. no. And right. I, I, by the way, I am. And this isn't me preaching. I, I go up and down regularly on this. And, and I reach out and stay in touch with people who can support me during those times. I don't try and go it alone. Um, you know, doing this stuff alone is really hard, right? And being a little bit vulnerable and having somebody that you can talk to and feel safe. If you don't have somebody, you know, obviously there's counselors that are available to be able to talk to as well, too. Just make sure that you're connected with somebody that you can be sharing with what's really going on. And when you're talking to them, tell the truth, right? Yeah. Like, I know it's tempting to just say fine or I'm good. But if you can and if it's safe and if it's the right, like, share. Share what's really going on and kind of help help take a little bit of that off of your shoulders. Everyone has at least one good friend or family member. And if you don't think you do, think again. Yeah. You probably do. And if you don't, reach out to you, right? Happy to talk. Yeah. Happy to talk. I mean, this this is tough stuff, right? Yeah. But this is life. Um, so please don't be shy. And if you're struggling, reach out to somebody. I mean, right. please. It's right. really important. We're in the people-saving business here. Right. Steve Moak, Jr., Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and please send my best to your family. My favorite day of the year. Thanks, Seth. God bless you all. Sam Stone coming in. <laughs> I'll have a lot of fun with Sam. I am Seth Leibson. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.